The Knowledgeable Provider Podcast is intended primarily to entertain, also to inform, but it is not a substitute for actual medical training and should not be used by anyone to diagnose or treat any medical condition in themselves or others. If you need medical advice, please make an appointment to see your own knowledgeable medical provider. The opinions expressed by me and anyone else who happens to appear on the podcast are solely those of the people expressing them and are not necessarily representative of any other entities. Other than the lunches at the office, I do not receive any sort of compensation from pharmaceutical or medical device companies, and I have no other relevant financial disclosures. Look, this is all for fun, okay? Don't sue me. All right, on with the show. To say that the internet has had a big impact on medical practice is a giant understatement. Of course, we know that patients come in all the time with information that they found online, and almost all of them will say at some point, okay, I know you're not supposed to Google things, but... And certainly it can be frustrating when people come in with inaccurate information or information that is counter to what we know to be the truth from medical science. But usually my response when they say things like that is, why wouldn't you look? I mean, the entire world of information is right there at your fingertips. If you had a question about something that was wrong with you, why wouldn't you just pull out your phone and see if you can figure out the answer? And of course, that's true for us as medical professionals too, right? Sometimes I wonder what my day-to-day would be like if there was no internet. I feel like I'd be sitting around reading the PDR all day trying to look up the answers that I need. And of course, when I need medical information that's impacting patient care... I'm going to say we because I hope I speak for all medical providers here. When we need that information, we make sure that we get it from reputable sources. Hippocrates tends to be my go-to because I find it very straightforward for just finding the answers that I need right now. Is this medicine okay for pregnant people? Or what is the basic pathophysiology of this condition that I don't know anything about? Or what medication do I order for this? Or what's the dose of this medication? Does the dose of this medicine have to be adjusted for kidney or liver issues? I can look those things up very quickly and I know that the information I'm getting is accurate. Of course, UpToDate is a fantastic resource. I find it more useful for learning about things in a more in-depth way, more like what you'd get if you looked something up in a textbook. And if I am just going to use the internet to find an answer, I make sure that it comes from somewhere reputable, like Mayo Clinic has a great website that always seems to have what I need. And of course, government agencies, the USPSTF, CDC, any of the major universities. But sometimes, especially when I'm charting, if I just need to know things like, what's the term for this that I'm trying to think of? Or what's the anatomy of this part of the body I need a picture to look at to make sure I'm using the right term in my charting? Or if a patient asks me about some commercial thing that they have seen on TV that I've never heard of, or a service that's provided by somebody else, I will definitely click over to Google and just find the answers that I need from there. And so I thought it might be interesting for the podcast to go back through my Google searches and share some useful things that I've learned lately. So I'm just going to do this in real time and see what comes out. Hopefully I will remember the answers to the things that I have queried, but if not, I guess I'll go ahead and Google them and see what comes up. I'm sitting here at my computer. I'm just going to click on the Google search bar and I'm going to start by typing what. All right, first thing that comes up, what type of vaccine is Abrisvo? A-B-R-Y-S-V-O. And the answer is that this is Pfizer's RSV vaccine for people 60 years of age or older that was just approved in May of 2023. It is an unadjuvanted vaccine that's made of two pre-F proteins chosen to optimize protection against RSVA and B strains. 
the other RSV vaccine for people 60 years of age and older that was approved earlier in May is called Arexv, A-R-E-X-V-Y. The Arexv contains recombinant subunit prefusion RSVF glycoprotein antigen, parentheses RSV pre-F3, combined with the manufacturer's proprietary adjuvant. It looks like there's not actually a recommendation for this yet, but you can see the evidence to recommendations framework for both of these vaccines from the CDC, and I'll post a link to that in the show notes. Next topic, let's go back to what? Oh, this is a good one. What is the difference between pap smears and HPV testing? I was looking at this because a patient came in and said she didn't want to have a pap smear, but she did want an HPV test. And I think she was under the impression that you could get a blood test for HPV. So then I got all confused about it. Either way, you still have to obtain a sample from the cervix, which means you still have to do the speculum exam. With a pap smear, the lab's actually looking for cancerous or precancerous cell changes in the cells themselves. And with HPV testing, of course, you're just testing for the presence of the HPV within the cells. The current guidance from ACOG about cervical cancer screening is that people who have cervixes who are aged 21 to 29 should have a pap test alone every three years. You can consider doing only HPV testing for people age 25 to 29, but the pap is preferred from age 30 to 65. You can do co-testing, which means you get a pap and an HPV test every five years. They can have just a pap smear every three years, or they can have just HPV testing every five years. There are a bunch of at-home HPV tests available that people can just go online and order themselves. But as far as I can tell, none of those are actually approved by the FDA. So at this point, I would not recommend those to a patient. All right, let's move on to where. Ah, where to apply testosterone gel. The first result that comes up on this is a great article from Mayo. And the short answer is that the Androgel brand for the 1% concentration should go on the shoulders, upper arms, or abdomen. For the 1.62% concentration, that should only go on the shoulders or the upper arms. The Fortesta brand should be applied to the front or inner thighs. I guess front means anterior thighs. The Vogelzo brand, that's V-O-G-E-L-X-O, not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, should be applied to the shoulders or upper arms, should not be applied to the abdomen or stomach, also should not be applied to the scrotum or penis. The gel should be allowed to dry before it's covered with any kind of clothing. For the Androgel 1.62%, the Fortesta and the Vogelzo, you want to wait two hours before you shower or swim, and for 1% Androgel, you want to wait five hours before you shower or swim. And of course, you'll want to look up the dosing for each one of these products. It's different for each concentration and each indication. And those are primary hypogonadism, comma male, hypogonadotropic hypogonadism, comma male, and masculinizing transgender hormone therapy. The listed contraindications, of course, hypersensitivity, pregnancy, breastfeeding, breast or prostate cancer, unstable coronary artery disease, and polycythemia. For monitoring, you want an H&H at baseline and then three to six months after treatment starts, then every 12 months after that, baseline PSA, then three to six months after treatment starts, then periodically, liver function testing, lipid panel, and calcium level if there's a risk of hypercalcemia. All right, let's try who. Uh, nothing came up under who. Let's try when. That takes me to the website for a book that was published back in 2020 called What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat, written by Aubrey Gordon, who is the co-host of the Maintenance Phase podcast, among other things. I actually just ordered her newer book, which is called 
quote, you just need to lose weight, unquote, and 19 other myths about fat people. I actually want to do a whole episode about obesity and talking with patients about weight loss at some point, but I really like the maintenance phase point of view about all that, diets and weight loss and fat bias and that sort of thing. It's helped me a lot in coming up with a more humane approach to talking about weight with people. And it's definitely not what we were taught in school. It's actually pretty critical of how healthcare in general deals with weight and weight loss. And she is not a medical person. So if you check out her books or the podcast, do so with an open mind and don't expect to get medical information like what we have all learned and been taught. All right, let's try why. All right, we got why is fluid resuscitation different for electrical burns? I was just teaching a class about this to the nursing students recently. You know, when I was a student, we talked about the Parkland burn formula, which is four milliliters times the total body surface area of the burn times the patient's weight in kilograms. And that's been updated. We now teach the American Burn Association 2018 formula, which separates burns into chemical, thermal, and electrical. For chemical and thermal burns, it's half of the Parkland formula, so it's two milliliters times the body surface area, times the patient's weight in kilograms. And the rest of that is still the same. The number you get there is how much fluid they're supposed to receive in the first 24 hours after the burn. And the recommended fluid is lactate or ringers. They get half of that volume over the first eight hours and the other half over the next 16 hours. For electrical burns, it's the same as the old Parkland formula. So it's four. Four mLs times the body surface area times the patient's weight in kilograms. And again, the same thing, half of that volume over the first eight hours and half over the next 16 hours. And I was just curious about the rationale for that. And so the answer is that because we're only looking at the skin to figure out the body surface area, that doesn't take into account the tissue underneath that would be involved in electrical burn, which you would not necessarily have so much with a chemical or thermal burn. All right, let's go back to why again. Why would steroids make vertigo worse? I was looking at that because a patient came in and was complaining of vertigo and had gotten a steroid taper. I don't remember if it was actually for the vertigo or for something else, but the patient said that while they were on the steroid, their vertigo was actually much worse. And really, I would have expected the opposite. You know, if it's vestibular neuritis, some kind of inflammatory thing, obviously you would expect steroids to help that. And I really couldn't find anything about why a steroid might make vertigo worse. So I don't know the answer to that one. All right, let's try how. <laughs> How do doctors work for insurance companies? I was searching for this after I did a peer-to-peer to try to get an MRI approved for a gentleman, which was not approved. Of course, I was mad about it. And I'm thinking, what kind of sellout do you have to be to go work for an insurance company and deny things for patients? Of course, I didn't really get the kind of answer I was looking for. So don't know the answer to that either. Well, sure I do. Money. Next question. Next how question. How is dye injected for CT myelography? I had a patient with a weird headache, and I was thinking about the possibility of a CSF leak. And I wanted to make sure I was telling her correctly how that procedure is done. And the answer is you actually get an epidural injection of contrast in order to look for a leak, which, of course, if you're getting an epidural injection, that's going to put you also at risk for having a CSF leak after the procedure. So I think once she found that out, she ended up opting out. Next how question, how long will iron be low after giving blood? At a patient that we found to be randomly anemic and nobody could figure out why. So the next time he came back, he said, oh, I forgot to tell you, I just donated blood when you checked my CBC that time. Uh, according to the American Red Cross's website, it may actually take up to 24 to 30 weeks to replace the iron lost through a blood donation. How about that? 
course, that depends on where your iron level was before the donation and whether or not you're taking supplements or how much iron you're taking in. It's worth noting that you can go donate blood more frequently than that, depending on the organization and the type of blood donation. Somewhere between 8 and 16 weeks is the minimum interval to wait between donations. Of course, the follow-up question then is how are the other labs affected by blood donation? found a study on the NIH National Library of Medicine site from the Sports Med Open from December 2016. This is like a really small study of people who were, quote, moderately trained, who donated blood several times, about three months apart. And the findings here are that the maximal decrease after a blood donation was 11% for hematocrit, 10% for hemoglobin, 50% for ferritin, and 12% for RBCs. It looks like a lot of research has been done to try to figure out how to reliably estimate blood loss by looking at the hemoglobin and hematocrit and how much they change. And as far as I can tell, there's really not a consensus. There are several different equations out there, several different methods, and and every study I'm finding sort of says the same thing. There's a big difference in these different ways of calculating this. So as far as I know, there's no simple answer to that part of the question. Okay, so we've done the who, what, when, where, why, how. Usually if I'm looking for a term for something, I'll just type in medical term for dot, dot, dot. So let me do medical term. Oh, I got a few here. All right. Medical term for allergic shiners. I guess that is pretty much a legit term. The only other ones I came up with were allergic facies or periorbital venous congestion. Uh, The next one is medical term for psychogenic itching. And what I came up with there was psychogenic pruritus, somatoform pruritus, functional itch disorder, or functional pruritus. And finally, medical term for heavy period, which is menorrhagia. I get all those terms for describing menstrual bleeding mixed up. And I think actually those are somewhat outdated anyway. So menorrhagia is heavy bleeding. Metorrhagia is bleeding that happens in between the regular periods. Menometorrhagia means a combination of heavy periods and bleeding in between the periods. Then you have polymenorrhea, which means more frequent cycles. You have oligomenorrhea, which means less frequent cycles. There's hypermenorrhea, which means the same thing as menorrhagia. There's ovulatory and anovulatory menorrhagia, functional menorrhagia, essential menorrhagia, idiopathic menorrhagia, primary menorrhagia, uncomplicated menorrhagia, symptomatic menorrhagia, <laughs> persistent menorrhagia, unexplained menorrhagia, genuine menorrhagia, epimenorrhea, epimenorrhagia, and metropathia hemorrhagica. So you can see why there's a need for a more concise and more agreed upon terminology to describe these things. So I believe the current preferred terminology is just abnormal uterine bleeding. And then they divide that into structural versus non-structural causes. There's a mnemonic, or maybe it's an acronym. I don't actually know the difference between a mnemonic and an acronym. Hey, let's, you know what? I'm going to Google that. Okay, so an acronym is a word formed by the first letters of all the words in a long phrase. Whereas a mnemonic is like rhyming lines or poems or fake names, that kind of thing. So like an example of an acronym would be the FAST thing for strokes, facial droop, arm drift, speech, and time. Whereas a mnemonic would be something like all the different little phrases that you can use to remember the cranial nerves, like the on old Olympus's towering tops of famous vocal German Butzum hops. So anyway, there's this acronym for thinking about causes of abnormal uterine bleeding that is palm coin. That's P-A-L-M-C-O-E-I-N. That stands for polyp, adenomyosis, leomyoma, malignancy and hyperplasia, coagulopathy, 
ovulatory dysfunction due to hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism, prolactin-secreting tumors or PCOS, endometrial, iatrogenic, as in caused by things like IUDs, chemotherapy, anticoagulants, or not yet classified. So the PALM side of the acronym is structural causes and the COINE side is functional causes. All right, that's all that comes up in my recent search history. I think this was good. I enjoyed doing this, and I probably learned more from doing this even than I did from Googling all this stuff the first time. So I hope you enjoyed it, and maybe we'll keep doing this from time to time as I continue to search for the things I don't know. So I have a bit of a confession to make. I enjoy ICD codes. I'm not going to say I love ICD codes. I mean, nobody gets into medicine to do charting and coding and blah, blah, blah. But I don't hate the ICD codes. It's kind of a neat little challenge to find the right codes for the problems that you need or the problems that you're dealing with. And the best thing is when you get to use a new ICD code or an obscure or funny ICD code. It's like a little game you can play throughout the day just to help make the whole paperwork process a little less arduous. So I thought it might be fun to look through the news headlines and see if we can find some ICD codes for current events. So here we go. What do you say? Let's have a little fun with ICD codes. Missing Titanic sub-crew killed after catastrophic implosion. All right, that's T70.9, adverse effect of water pressure. T70.29, barotrauma. W94.32, rapid air pressure change during descent in water. And V90.11, drowning and submersion due to passenger ship sinking. Interestingly enough, that one would also be used for the victims of the original shipwreck they were going to see. Donald Triplett, the first person diagnosed with autism, has died. That would be F84.0, Autism Spectrum Disorder. You think they do anything to recognize the very first patient that a given ICD code gets used for? Probably not. 3M to pay $10.3 billion over PFAs in drinking water. Z77.111, Contact with and suspected exposure to water pollution. Heard of escaped goats, grazes through Texas neighborhood. So there's W55.39, Accidental Contact with Goat. W55.31, bitten by goat, and W55.32, butted by goat. Andrew Tate charged with rape and human trafficking. T74.21, adult sexual abuse, comma, confirmed. T74.51, adult forced sexual exploitation, comma, confirmed. Former Pittsburgh Steeler Clark Haggins dead at age 46. This is speculation, of course, but perhaps F07.81, post-concussional syndrome, Definitely R99, ill-defined and unknown cause of mortality. I assume there would be a code for CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, but as far as I can tell, there's not. Four people killed by hail and tornadoes today in Texas. There are a bunch of individual codes for different types of storms that fall under the X37 code, which is cataclysmic storm. This one in particular sounds like X37.1, which is tornado. You have X37.0, which is hurricane. Point two, which is blizzard, parentheses, snow, parentheses, ice. Three, which is dust storm. Four, which is tidal wave. Four, one, which is tidal wave due to earthquake or volcanic eruption. Four, two, which is tidal wave due to storm. Four, three, tidal wave due to landslide. Then we have X37.8, 
other cataclysmic storms and X37.9 unspecified cataclysmic storm. Maybe they're saving 5 through 7 for as yet undiscovered types of cataclysmic storms. That's a little scary. Captured on video at Kruger National Park in South Africa, Mongoose rescues another mongoose caught by eagle. W61.91, bitten by other birds. I was hoping for a video of this, but it looks like there's only still images. And I'll put the link to the story in the show notes. Donald Trump indicted today over mishandling of classified documents. Oh boy. How about uh, F60.81, narcissistic personality disorder. Hunter Biden to plead guilty to misdemeanor tax charges and avoid felony gun charge. Z65.0, conviction in civil and criminal proceedings without imprisonment. RFK Jr. F22, delusional disorders. Nova Scotia men play 306 holes of golf in 12 hours. M77.0, medial epicondylitis, aka golfer's elbow. North Carolina legislature passes ban on trans athletes from girls sports teams. I wonder if this will end up being a thing where they stop referring to gender identity issues as disorders. Much like homosexuality used to be pathologized and they finally got rid of that. But as it stands now, we have F64 gender identity disorders with several subcategories. 0.0 transsexualism. 0.1 dual role transvestism. 0.2 gender identity disorder of childhood. 0.8 other gender identity disorders. And 0.9 gender identity disorder, comma unspecified. Although for this particular case, I think the code we really need is Z60.5, political discrimination. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich to remain in Russian prison. Z65.1, imprisonment or incarceration, also with the comorbidity of a little Z60.5. Snake catcher finds Python suspended between two cars. Apparently there's not an ICD code for nope. So I'm going with W59.13, crushed by non-venomous snake. And if I'm the one who runs across that situation, I'm going with the combination of F44.1 and R68.89, hysterical dissociative fugue. I hope someone else enjoyed that at least half as much as I did. I think maybe I'm just going to do that for the whole podcast from now on. So since I recorded that first segment, I've read about half of Aubrey Gordon's book that I mentioned, and I really like it so far. It's very well written. And there's a whole chapter about how the medical community in general deals with obesity and fat people, which is her preferred term. And it's really interesting to hear her perspective as a quote unquote fat person based on her own interactions with the medical community, as well as a lot of research on weight loss and medicine. It's just such a different perspective than we get in our training, as I mentioned before. And I don't necessarily agree with every bit of it, but as someone who's always struggled with being overweight myself, I can verify that the medical community is not always nice about it. And I can also verify that it's not a simple problem. My own experience with trying to lose weight has been very much a yo-yo diet kind of situation just this decades-long cycle of gaining and losing the same 30, 40 pounds over and over again. The specific myth that she addresses for the healthcare section is, quote, calories in, calories out, unquote, which on some level, I think it really is that simple. But once you start considering all of the other variables, it becomes a much more complicated situation. So I want to recommend that book again, encourage you to take a look at it. I think if nothing else, it might give you a little bit more compassionate view on obesity or fatness and maybe help you think a little bit more about how you deal with your patients who are affected by this. And if you're someone who struggled with weight issues yourself, I know you'll enjoy it. All right, that does it for this episode of Knowledgeable Provider. I'm your host, Jody Marks. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like or subscribe or follow. 
and leave a nice five-star review. And as always, stay safe, take care of yourself, and take care of your patients in that order.